Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to have back on the show Dr. J.R. Woodward. J.R. is a missional catalyst, and he's a deep thinker about the intersections of leadership, missiology, the same sorts of things that we talk about on this podcast regularly. And today we're going to take a deep dive into his latest book. And this is an important book. It's called The Scandal of Leadership, Unmasking the Powers of Domination in the Church. And he uses the scholarship of persons such as Walter Wink, Rene Girard, and William Stringfellow as well as positive examples, most principally uh, human leaders, Oscar Romero, but most principally the model for authentic surrendered leadership is Jesus himself. So JR and I are going to get into a good discussion of the book of Philippians and the Christ hymn and how that applies to leadership. And you're going to love this conversation. Whenever I talk to JR, I'm always inspired. I'm always encouraged. And I really appreciate the clear ability that he has to articulate some complex ideas, but most importantly, not just to describe complex ideas, but to bring them into our lives so that we can live more authentically as the people that God created us to be and be witnesses to the good news of the gospel. Uh, Before we jump into the conversation, all the resources that we mentioned will be in the show notes, including a link to my earlier conversation uh, with JR. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always check out brianrussellphd.com. Thank you for listening, and let's jump into my interview with Dr. JR Woodward. Welcome back to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast, JR. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. No, it's always great to see you. Yeah, yeah, good to see you too. And uh, congratulations on your your latest book, The Scandal of Leadership. And uh, yeah, fantastic read, uh, important for the uh, for the church and for leadership. Um, Just kind of catch us up a little bit. If uh, folks go back and listen to the first interview I did with you, you you were in the process of writing the manuscript, and I don't remember how much you had done, but you teased out a little bit there. So I'm going to link to that, but. Um, talk about the title, the scandal of leadership, and talk about the problem that you were trying to address here uh, in in this book. Yeah, no, that's yeah, great question. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this book has kind of been in me for like about twenty plus years, and it started in in our kind of translocal organization. And I I, I kind of noticed that the key leader, whatever whatever their title is, president or whatever. Um, you know, started out good and came less good when they got in that role. And so I had, I, I, I was very curious about that and why that happened it, pretty continuously. <laughs> and so, and, and obviously now we see the, you know, the epidemic of fallen pastors and so forth. So it was kind of interesting around that, as that was happening, I was asked to speak on spiritual warfare. And I I, I was trying to think about how do I, Speak about spiritual warfare in a contextualized way. I was on a campus church working with other campus people, and I think you know how do we how do I kind of take a serious account of the current plausibility structure? Uh, because I think the powers when we think about the powers, I think Satan, the demonic, and principalities and powers uh, often remain uncomprehensible to those that we're trying to communicate to. 
And so I, I think we can make the error of either under contextualizing. Uh, so we just, and I, I would say that where we just take the, the text as it was received in its original context and just tried to push it onto ours, even though we've kind of lived 2000 years, accumulated a lot of knowledge. Uh, and we, you know, we kind of have a, a framework in which we view the world. And uh, any good missionary, you know, contextualization is kind of a missionary term, like figures out what's, you know, what's happening in this context, how do they see the world and how do I bring the good news into this space? And so I'm kind of doing that with the powers. And I, I, I noticed I, when, when I did that years ago, that it really clicked with people in a way that like uh, very unusual, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people came up afterwards and said like, I think this is gonna be a life message for you. And it kind of has turned into that. So when I talk about the scandal of leadership, I'm kind of playing off, uh, even though maybe at first look, it kind of is like, you know, yeah, all these things are scandalous that are happening in the church. But I'm kind of using it in a Girardian way. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is the scandal of leadership. The way that uh, Jard would talk about scandal is when we, you know, scandal literally means the obstacle. And so when we become an obstacle to uh, those that we are leading. And so maybe if I can just give a quick Girardian thing, a reminder, uh, I think I did hit that in the last uh last time yeah, I was yeah we definitely so we want to kind of go, go back to over that a little bit though for sure so yeah 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 so when I'm using scandal like it, you know it, there's kind of three moves that Jard makes and he just deepens his study of them in the 20 books that he writes so the first one is mimetic desire and that is like we we desire isn't like in a straight line like we we generate our own desires uh you know here's the object of desire here's us but it's mimetic and then in that we imitate the desires of our model. So you could say instead of being a straight line, it's more triangular. And uh, if our models are close to us in proximity and it's not like King and Popper uh, and it's uh, and it's not like geographically uh, separated, um, then uh, what happens is if the if the model has something they desire that they either can't share like a wife or something that they won't share, like say, a leadership role, then that will create mimetic rivalry. And rivalry is essentially what? Like, let's say I use this as an example. So let's say I'm a lead pastor. Nothing necessarily wrong with being lead pastor, but if you desire that role, that title, uh, as opposed to the work of, um, anybody who looks up to you will also desire that. And so, it, it, and if you're not willing to share that, then at that point, you become an obstacle to the very desire that you gave those who look up to you. So that's kind of rivalry. When mimetic rivalries increase, it becomes a mimetic crisis. Everybody's against everybody. And then historically, as, a, as Gerard kind of studied anthropology, mythology for 10 years and looked at ancient societies and current societies, what he realizes in ancient societies, what happened as, these, as there was a mimetic crisis uh, the way they resolved that violent tension that it was building was to uh, mimetically land on a scapegoat and they killed them, you know. Uh, eventually, they, they kind of ritualized that. So maybe you start sacrificing animals or other things. Uh, and and so that, that that's kind of the scapegoat mechanism is his second kind of uh, discovery. The third discovery was just that uh, the Bible is unique in all of the literature that he studied in that while mythology concealed our complicity to this mimetic cycle, 
um, the scripture reveals it, you know. And so we kind of see, we see in Old Testament faintly like Joseph, he becomes the scapegoat of his brothers, but we, we're kind of told he's innocent, right? But we see it most dramatically in Jesus himself. He becomes the scapegoat to the Jews first, then the Romans. And that contagiousness kind of even affects all of his disciples. So Peter, you know, the rock, uh, he, he, he can't even identify, you know, he has to deny Jesus to a 13-year-old girl, which is kind of crazy when you think about the Jewish aspect of things. And so, it, it, you know, this contagion becomes like a mob mentality and it overtakes everybody. And I would say, and Jared would say before Christ, it was always unanimous. You know, uh, the scapegoat was the guilty person. And we all believe that. We kind of landed on the, through the imitation of our models mimetically. And so then well, what resulted is peace, you know, came over the whole community. So what we see with Jesus is he becomes the willing scapegoat, which was very different, right? And 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 when the father raised him from the dead, it kind of revealed what the powers have been up to since Cain and Abel. And and so we, we see with, with Jesus, really the only way Jesus was able to escape the power was to imitate his father. And when we imitate Christ, uh, we will also kind of, you know, therefore kind of be loyal and love the father as well. So I'm, I'm kind of using scandal in the sense of scandal of leadership is the leader can be a, a scandal to those they're leading by having misplaced desires uh, or the other the only other alternative is to follow the scandalous way of christ and and i kind of go through that and we can hit that sometime but that's uh kind of through the canonic journey of philippians 2 in particular so either become a scandal or follow the scandalous way of christ there is no alternative yeah, I love that, uh, that play on the words too. And yeah, we'll end with uh, some of the, the canonic theology, the, the Jesus, the Christ hymn in, in Philippians 2. Yeah, you, so you talked a little bit about um, mimetic and give, can you say something like what that word actually means? Because I, I think you explained the idea behind it, but what is like, that's going to be a foreign word to at least some of the people that are on there. So say something a little about that and then yeah, say a little bit more about, um, well, actually, like powers when you say powers that's the walter wink i think stuff and you're trying to talk about spiritual warfare so talk a little bit about that as, okay. so the folks understand the concepts of how you're going at that but start with mimetic like what 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 does that word actually yeah. mean so like uh i mean it kind of comes from like mimic you know and so but uh really gerard is a, a doctor of desire you know he had like two earned phds six conferred by different countries in europe and canada and uh, so he developed a lot of his own words. I, I think he felt like either imitation or just the word mimic uh, was uh, would kind of play to whatever people already thought. Uh, you know, they already filled those words quite well. And so he was trying to create when he says mimetic desire, it, it really is just something we imitate the desires of our models. We're by nature social animals. And so uh, desires are not self-generated but they're mimicked uh so through through those that we look up to and in a sense like in very general way you know mimetic desire would be what the whole advertising madison avenue works on what the market works on all, all of the we can probably see it in many different places right so uh while it's particularly rivalry kind of results from a mimetic desire of a, a model that's close i i think you could broadly also say that you know it happens in and culture uh, from, you know, our desires are also shaped by many other people that look like they're living the, uh, a life that we want to live. All of those things can kind of draw us. 
Yeah, that's really good. Does that help uh, with that? Yeah, so it's really his own coin term, and it really is fairly simple. We mimic or imitate the desires of our model. No, that's, that, that, I think that's going to be super helpful for everybody uh, listening if they're not familiar with uh, Gerard. So now powers, like, um, you know, you talked about how to, how do you talk about spiritual warfare? You talked about how you learned to do that, like on a college campus. Uh, so talk a little bit about how you use the the, the term power. And also, I'd, I'd yeah. love to hear a little bit, um, and you maybe you haven't thought about this. I'd love to hear you also reflect a little bit on um the power of like the unconscious in a person, some of the stuff that like modern psychology does with persons. And, and is that a power also? And, um, but I just love to hear how you talk about spiritual warfare and then maybe how it's disguised from the modern world. Is that Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so uh, I, I think when I think about the powers, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I think there's the Satan, which is a, a concept that uh, through Girard, I deconstruct and reconstruct through Matthew Krausman. There's probably a lot there. I'm not sure we'll have the full time to get into that, but like, uh, but I, 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 I end up kind of do believe that Satan's a person in a very different way than we, we uh, maybe tradition kind of brings up. I think he's a cosmic entity, uh, a bigger person. Uh, and I can talk a little bit about that. Uh, and, and again, what I'm trying to do is kind of contextualize. So you could, I, in, in the first chapter, I, I kind of give this forward fry continuum scale of how do we, how do we translate something into our current space, right? And you can kind of be a traditionalist where you just reassert the first century understanding without giving much regard to anything, knowledge that we developed in the last 2000 years. You can be like an interpreter where you're kind of giving priority to Christian theology developed in community, but and, and kind of a serious engagement with the present context. And I think the correlator is you're given equal weight to the theology developed within the church in conversation with other disciplines in the academy. Uh, maybe on the other end, you have the reinterpreter who's kind of seeking to integrate with our current context as more important and even essential. So developing a method in line with that. Uh, and, uh, and then you have the reductionist, which would be on the way other end where you give complete priority to the modern or secular philosophy or worldview and Christianity in its own terms is only valid insofar as it fits that dynamic. So I kind of like uh, when you're talking about the powers and trying to understand and what does Satan mean? What does it mean? The demonic, what does it mean? The principalities and powers. I kind of put different people on, you know, different continuums as a way to, for us to kind of discern, like where, how do we interpret? What do we value? Why do we value it? And so forth. And I, and I, so I bring a lot of different ideas and I really want the reader to be able to land on their understanding. Now, what I say Wink does, Wink does a good job. You know, he has his trilogy of naming, unmasking and engaging the powers. And I would say the first book, Naming the Powers, uh, which I just give an overview of each of these books in, in, the, in chapter four, where He's really just doing exegetical work. What did it mean in the context in which it was first discovered? And then his other books is where he's doing his hermeneutical work. And he basically kind of talks about, uh, I, I think a huge part of understanding Wink is he is taking what was uh, given in the ancient worldview. And when, he's, when I say worldview here, I'm not talking about like uh, how some people use Christian worldview, <laughs> like but an ancient worldview is just kind of this idea of heaven and earth mutually influence each other, their counterparts to each other. And this was something that wasn't just uh, shared by biblical writers, but pretty much everyone in the ancient world. This was the way, the framework, their kind of you know perception of reality, it include the Greeks, the Romans, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. So even the enemies 
of Israel had this framework, right? So he would just say that framework is not the gospel. You know, those frameworks have changed over the period of time with our gain of knowledge. And he, you know, works through like a spiritual worldview, materialist worldview, theological worldview, and lands in the fifth worldview that he thinks that uh, humanity has kind of lived in is the integral worldview. Uh, emerging from Carl Jung, Matthew Fox, and uh, New Physics, and different things like that. And that is kind of, he sees everything as an outer and inner aspect. Uh, it takes the ancient world seriously, in that both ancient and interworld view in clay, uh, in, include a spatial element, uh, but they combine them differently. And so in the ancient worldview, transcendence is considered upward in heaven, while in an integrated worldview, spirituality is considered inward, where the spirituality is the inner aspect of all social reality. And so I, I, I think that uh, he does this quite well. Like uh, his work, essentially his hermeneutical work is translating the powers from its original context to an integral worldview. And again, uh, when I say integral worldview, this is just uh, the, the common way that we may see the world, even without really realizing it, right? It's because of we have lived and been educated and, you know, this is the best way that we understand the world taken into science and all of these things have bring value to us. So, so for him, like, uh, you know, uh, maybe instead of like these demons kind of flying in, out, you know, out there somewhere, uh, it, they, they embody, they're embodied in institutions and sometimes people and, and so forth. And so they're the inner reality so there's both the external and the internal reality of the spirituality of an institution, a spirituality of something is kind of where uh, he kind of places things instead of upward, it's over there. So that would be, that doesn't hit everything, uh, you yeah. know, but like uh, things can become demonized. And then I would say the principalities and powers, I make them distinction from Satan and and uh, the demonic. I, I would say that like uh, principalities and powers are best articulated by William Stringfellow. And he basically talks about image, institution, and ideology. And image is kind of like this idea, there's uh, J.R. Woodward, the person, and J.R. Woodward, the image. My image seeks to, you know, make me fully devoted to it, as opposed to living out my image in, in God. And so, you know, even social media, other things probably accent the power of the image. And uh, and so the, the our image seeks to possess us instead of us possess our image in God. That's kind of the weakest of the per, uh, principalities. Um, institution would be the other one because we all kind of probably live into, into some type of institution. We find a lot of meaning in our work and we usually work in some type of institution. And when an institution, uh, a string fellow would say, uh, is oriented around its own survival is when it becomes demonic mm -hmm. and and so uh in other words everybody must like 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 any idol you know i think your work kind of does with idols it, it it becomes the most important thing uh the the first thing and it demands ultimate loyalty and uh so this can happen with our image it can happen with our the institutions that we're a part of and and, and then lastly there's ideology maybe the most common understood thing. It's all the isms, whether it's communism or capitalism. Uh, these ideologies, I would say, often are shaping us in ways that we don't know. A mature ideology has a sociology, a, a way they view creation, sin, you know, the fall and uh, redemption. Um, and so, and, and they have their own eschatology of kind of what is the end and the, the, you know, the good life or what, what where are things going to tell us. So, uh, 
I, I, I think what happens even maybe a way to kind of think about it concretely, you know, today we kind of have your super conservative and your super progressive. I think they're both kind of ideologically driven. And one of the ways, you know, uh, Gerard would say that we know we're uh, captive to an ideology is that we scapegoat or demonize the other. You know, we can no longer come into conversation with them. I think that, uh, and, and by the way, this happens to, obviously, we, the church seems to be mirroring what happens in the world. And, and so we, you know, we, we can't even have dialogue with each other on very nuanced issues. And, and, and that happens when we're captive to an ideology. And I think that the principalities, while I don't see much redemption for Satan in the demonic, I, I think they're emergent realities that, that don't need saved. Principalities and powers, I think, for through First uh, Corinthians, or excuse me, Colossians one, fifteen through twenty, we see the you know uh, both the visible and invisible, you know, the earthly. The way they're described, uh, they're created by God, and they're also going to be redeemed, and they're redeemed through Christ. And so, uh, I think they have the potential for redemption. Whether that can fully happen on the side of heaven's earth is another question and debate. No, that's so that's so good. I love I always love talking to you because I just I feel like I learned so much. I could yeah, I could just drill down on this for I think hours. So let me let me ask a um let me ask an application question before we move to the the solution, which is the scandal of Jesus and his way of life. So um given what you said about the powers and their power to infest, and you know, you can bring in um how does what have you found helpful in your own coaching, your ministry, or even personally? Like, how do you build, is it self-awareness? Like, how would you build awareness that these things are starting to encroach on your own life well in advance of like going over Niagara Falls? Um, yeah, yeah. And, and then, and, and, and how would you, and like, you can layer that out. So, I mean, even just starting with ourselves, like if there's, there's a lot of pastors that are listening here. Uh, and they, they want to live holy lives. They want to love God and neighbor. But, you know, it's all of us have stuff that needs to, whether you want to use exercised or subverted, whatever language you actually want, want to use. So, like, how can a pastor or just a, a Christian listen to this recognize the need for ongoing transformation? And then as you take that out, how does a local church, an institution, like, a, a, what, what is, what, what, are, what, and that's a big question I know too, but like, what's, what, what would be a takeaway that yeah. would help you diagnose the problem? So then we can talk about how Jesus actually is that, uh, the solution to that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, I, that's a super important question. Uh, as deep as it is, I'll do my best to yeah. give some thought to it. Uh, I, I'll kind of start by saying when, John and first John is kind of addressing his letter. Uh, he talks about, I write to you young people because, you know, to, to, to know, know your forgiveness in Christ, that type of thing. I write to you young men because you have learned to overcome the evil one. And I write to you like fathers. I think he actually uses the fathers first, you know, because you know God. So we kind of see these different developmental ideas in John, right? Like understanding that we're totally forgiven, like is something that we need to go over and over and it's a part of something that is uh important for you know a babe in christ uh but an adult as well but it's something kind of foundational right uh everything else kind of flows from that understanding uh, i i think that we have failed in this current time because maybe for whatever reasons we either have under contextualized the powers so they don't seem to make any we don't think about them in a real deep way um 
or under under contextualize them and say like like uh uh boltman where they're not real spiritual realities but it's just a way to describe our existential human struggle so he kind of talks about them as they would have been understood in the first century but then demythologizes them and i think i'm into the work of remythologizing with the help of a number of people now how does this kind of get concrete i'm just kind of saying like number one i think we need to understand that like this is a a needed uh pathway of spiritual development like how does spiritual formation take place in light of an understanding of the powers without that in light of i i don't know that we will get to the point of spiritual maturity it, it's probably considered what a young person did in the old time and it's probably what old people need to figure out today uh <laughs> just because of the distance and time. I think maybe the best way to think about it is through Jesus' own temptations, like, uh, because his, I think temptations are, are, archetypal, are archetypical. And, uh, and just think about what happened before he was led, in, uh, really like pushed into the wilderness by the spirit, you could say. It's a pretty aggressive word there. But uh, w what happened right before that? I think he was probably fasting, know, like, right? Uh, he, yeah, he was fasting. Oh, no. Okay, yeah, he, he was up, fasting. Oh, he was baptized. Yeah, before he even baptized. started fasting. Yeah, he was baptized. And, and what happened at that baptism that was pretty monumental? Yeah, the, what, yeah God actually identifies him as his beloved son, and uh, the spirit comes down yeah. on him like a dove. Yeah. Yeah, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So his sense of identity, I think it's very critical that in the story, and this is pretty common with each of the places it's mentioned, is like that story is very uh, important because he is getting his sense of identity from the father, the non-rivalist father. And now he's kind of, the spirit pushes and leads him into the, the wilderness. He starts fasting. And what is the first temptation? Uh, I'm going to go by the way of Luke, and, because I think these temptations become a concrete way for us, to, for me to answer the question that you pose is, uh, you know, if you are the son of God. So uh, I, I didn't kind of mention this, but when I think about what a leader is, who any person is, I, I, I think a leader, whether you leave a church, leave a family, leave a business, like there's our identity, there's our praxis, like so who we are, uh, what we do, and then there's our telos, uh, who we're becoming. And uh, these are just three contours of leadership that I think we need to think about. I would say I also kind of uh, have an underlying assumption that our identity and our telos shape our praxis, our use of power. And so let's see how this kind of works out in this. Uh, and keep in mind, image, institution, ideology, because there's a I kind of correspond these to the temptations as well. So I'm kind of bringing together kind of uh, what a leader is of any type. Uh, the principalities, as Stringfellow talks about them, and now we're going to look at how they work in the temptations. You know, the first temptation was, you know, if you are the son of God, keep in mind, he's coming after his identity because that's most foundational to who we are. How we get our sense of identity is also important. Uh, mimetic desire kind of speaks to that. Like we don't get it individually, we get it through the other. And so um, the first temptation is like, turn this, you know, stone into bread. Uh, I, I kind of follow Jacques Lul, where he considers this an economic temptation. In other words, like, uh, you know, when we look at somebody, we, we kind of like judge their success, if you will, in life, probably quite a bit based on their economics. Why? Because economics, like what you do, what you is often shown by what you have. And 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 we put a high value on that. Uh, you know, oftentimes we fall to the whole thing of like our self-worth equals our net worth. Um, 
when we have economic, we can do whatever we want, right? So we can, in a sense, turn stone to bread. Like we can kind of create things. I think that first question we have to ask ourselves is, where do we find our ultimate significance? And again, when we get to the solution of the canonic journey, this becomes an important thing. Where, what are we basing our sense of identity on? The world has its way of kind of squeezing us into its mold. Uh, we get them by titles. We get them by all these things. Remember Jesus, what he had to say about titles. Uh, and uh, but uh, I, I think, you know, we just have to ask, like, you know, I'm like a, a national director for V3. Like, I, I cannot, like, uh, get my sense of significance from that title. That's a temptation. If I'm a pastor, if I'm a lead pastor or whatever, if I start to kind of get my primary sense of identity or even really any sense of identity from that title i think that 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 is a mark uh it should be a red flag that like i have uh i have kind of fallen to this temptation um i think we need to discover our identity through abiding in the life of god through the word of god's a lot of things that you write about even in your current uh book which is what's the title of the new one it's it's astonished by the word reading scripture for deep transformation thanks for the plug right in the middle of the podcast here too thanks Yeah, yeah, no, but I think that's that is like what is the yeah. what is the very uh, thing that Jesus says like we are you know we, uh, don't we don't live by bread alone but the the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Yes. So your book is essentially like we have to get our sense of being uh, fed by the ultimate being. Uh, so that that that's kind of the the heart of that. It, it really focuses on identity. I think the the second temptation, by the way, of Luke uh, because different people order it differently is a political temptation and uh, at least that's how the law would do it. so this is a temptation for security it's just a, it's this desire for control uh it's where a poor use of power happens which is a big part of what my book is about and i think the question we have to ask here is how do we use our power um and i i think we have to be willing to surrender to the spirit by joining god and bringing the kingdom uh, uh in the way of christ and so i think like uh, you know, in, in any given institution, like this is where our, you know, how we live our power out is going to be manifest. And and so this deals with our praxis as a leader. And then I think the, the third temptation, you know, here Jesus is, uh, again, it starts with, if you are the son of God, doesn't the scripture say, now he's kind of quoting scripture. So now we think, oh, scripture is the answer, but now, ah, well, now the devil himself is using the scripture. And if you you know you're on this temple, you can throw yourself off. The angels will catch you. Uh, a little calls this a re- religious or ideological religious temptation. Number one, it's kind of the setting is religious. It's in Jerusalem. There's a temple. There's the angels. There's the the scripture being spoken by Satan, and so it's really it's it's kind of religious temptation. I think to read scripture and understand God's mission through a misshaped ideology. We talked about the ideology, so. Um, I think we, the primary question we're asking, how do I understand God's redemptive story? And uh, again, it, it, if we're captive to an ideology without knowing it, it, it shapes the way we read scripture. So we think that we're saying what the scripture says, but we might have a misunderstanding of it. How do we know? Like, well, am I demonizing the other? Can I dialogue about it? Uh, usually, you know, if we become defensive in something, it's because there's not a level of confidence and, uh, and, and it may all. So, and if we have a wrong view of the other, if we can't fully love the other, even our enemy, that's the test, then uh, that, then I think that we might have fallen to 
this without knowing it. So I think that deals with the telos, right? Uh, the telos of every life in congregation and really any body of any form is living in God and have, having a healthy view of the kingdom of God. Now, that, that's not easy to come up with, like easy to say, but that's something we have to wrestle through. So I think the questions that we can ask is, where do I find my significance? Uh, how, do we, how do I use my power? Um, and how do I have checks on that? And how do I understand God's redemptive story? Um, and maybe the question there is to like, am I kind of uh, unknowingly uh, or am I, you know, am I, are, are there people that I demonize or scapegoat because I just can't deal with them? Or am I able to kind of connect with just about anybody like Jesus did? It, it doesn't mean that everybody's equally right, but uh, we certainly should be able to have the dialogue. So I would say those temptations can help us the more we can understand them. I go into a little bit more depth in the, in the book, but that's uh quick overview no no that, that that's fantastic i mean i think those are like just uh yeah i just wrote those three questions down those are fan fantastic so uh, thank you for uh for that and we have about mm -hmm. uh, 10 or 15 minutes left which let's okay. talk then about okay so you've asked that you know you've set up the questions uh you're you're writing about the, the powers we have this this the, the whole mimetic um desire piece so how does yeah this is now here's another monster question how does how does Philippians two this the the picture of the 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 Christ him essentially how does Jesus subvert that um, mm. and give us yeah. the model yeah. that literally allows us to choose? So I guess the basically your book premise that's put is we have to live scandalously. The question ends up: Is it scandalously because we follow Jesus's way, or do we just make ourselves a human train wreck and become a scandal that other people can look at as a warning? I guess right. So like, how do we? Yeah, 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 yeah. How do we learn to follow the way of Jesus, and how does Philippians two play into that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So really, the last two chapters is uh last three chapters getting the remedy but the last two is kind of look at philippians in particular i think it's kind of it, it, I, I take a wide look in the first chapter and then focus look of chapter two in particular so let me just kind of go to the wide angle view um i i, I think like uh most commentators would talk about Utica and Sitica mentioned in Philippians 4.1, that they're kind of in this debate with each other, right? Uh, that's creating division in the whole church. So the same words that are used here to have the same mind is kind of mentioned in Philippians 2 when he's addressing the entire church. As, as we know, like if there's kind of difficulty in the leadership, it, it often flows down into the whole congregation, right? And so I, I kind of propose, like a lot of people say, what, did, what were they arguing about? What were their issues? Like we're not told. And, and I think maybe... Uh, maybe I, I kind of hypothesize that they they kind of become and fall into mimetic rivalry. Now, let me just kind of say how it could happen in a very like innocent type of way. Let's say Utica wants to be the best leader with all the good intentions. Uh, well, Sintica subconsciously mimics that desire, and uh, and so she wants to be the best leader. Well, like there's only gonna be one best leader, so. What, unknowing to them, they're kind of getting into rivalry. And when you become rivals, uh, actually, you know, Gerard talked about, you become mimetic doubles in that you kind of start to mirror both the attitudes and, you know, uh, and the expressions and other things of the other person that you're in rivalry with. You can't, you're, you're both kind of repelled by them and obsessed by them at the same time. And so uh, what does Paul do? He basically says, I plead to you, Unica, Unica I plead to you, Sintica, 
and you know to have the same mind. He separates them. I think that's very interesting because if they become doubles, they probably need a separation first. And if you kind of look at the flow of the book, I kind of make a case that it's really a book about positive and anti-models. You know, uh, Jesus becomes the arc model, and then uh, Timothy is an example. Epaphrodites is an example, and then Paul himself is an example. Now. Uh, let's look at the arch example then, because we're we're trying to kind of resolve. Uh, we 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 have a, a congregation that's kind of in this mimetic cycle. There's divisions. There's probably scandals happening because one person likes this leader, another one likes this leader. These leaders are in rivalry with each other, so the congregation is in rivalry with each other as well because they're mimicking the desires of their uh, of their leaders if they happen to be looking up to them. And and this kind of shows that like our being and our sense of belonging. Are, are meshed together. We can't separate those. This isn't an individualistic journey. Uh, our journey has to be in the context of community because I make the case that the people that we belong to is the type of person we've become. We kind of see this reflected in scripture. Walk with wise people, you become wise. The companions of fools suffer harm. Why is that? Because it's mimetic desire. We start to mimic the desires of the people closest to us. Uh, those are the people we enjoy. Those are the people we kind of um, subconsciously mimic. And so what... In order for this to happen, I think Paul was saying, you guys need a whole new sense of being and belonging. And, and you have to do this together. It's a collective exercise. And, uh, and, and so then he goes like, you know, he lifts up Jesus as the ultimate model. Like Jesus being in the very form of God did not consider, you know, uh, that to some of the grass or he did not like exploit his status uh, is another translation. He he emptied himself, you know, uh, became a human, even became, you know, slave. So he he's kind of becoming this low status. I should kind of mention that in the context of Philippi, that the 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 the, the greatest commodity was honor and prestige. And if you had money, you used it to buy honor for you and your household. Because usually, you know, they were very group thinking uh, much more than we are today. And so, uh, in fact, they found like 7,000 inscriptions uh, that people would pay to kind of honor, you know, that, 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 that household. And interestingly enough, you know, the way that these inscriptions uh, were written is they started with their ascribed honor, which is what they inherited, you know, either their wealth or their status, because really only like there was elite non-elites. And there was that was a huge divide that really uh, nobody really crossed. And within the elite, non-elite, there were subdivisions, right? And they had a, a, a very particular pathway to greater honor. It was like concretely given. They they knew what it was. And so honor was everything. And I, and I think in our context today, like, uh, so there was ascribed honor, but then there was achieved honor. And that was kind of secondary because ascribed honor was much more stable. Uh, achieved honor you know, was was always a little bit more fickle, right? Uh, more fragile. And uh, I think today we put less emphasis on ascribed honor. I don't really care who you were born or where you're born. I care about what you're doing with your life now. So this creates even more anxiety, more status anxiety for us because it's a lot more fragile. And uh, I kind of mentioned uh, some work and kind of delineate what that means. But here's the point, like, I don't think we're much different than that. Like we, we, we value honor, our own sense of self, and how we see ourselves is based on kind of the honor that we're kind of given. And so uh, Jesus doesn't, you, you know, he is God, but he doesn't, you know, the Romans were trying to be God. So they would try to ascribe even God, Godness to themselves, as some people might do today. Uh, uh, whereas Jesus saying, no, like, I, I, I'm not going to use that 
uh, that real status I have. I'm going to empty myself. Uh, instead of being full of myself, I'm going to be empty. Uh, and then I'm going uh, even uh, and then I'm going to have this revolutionary, humble obedience. Right. He became obedient even to the point of death. So I, I think the that imitating Christ is easy to say imitating Christ. I think what I'm saying is like uh, in or this is a very scandalous approach to leadership because it doesn't correspond to anything that the world has to say when it comes to developing our sense of self and our own status. I think what this journey is about is like we're trying to live on a very different plane than uh, I would say the world and even the, often the Christian world kind of tries to form us and, 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 and give us a sense of identity. I think we have to refuse our status, like we have to empty ourselves of the ways that we've kind of built our sense of status. And I would say maybe Paul gives us that example, right? In Philippians 3, when he's giving his own autobiography, he just happens to do it just like all the inscriptions that were found in, in, uh, in, you know, in Philippi, where he's like, yeah, so I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. These are his, uh, you know, uh, ascribed honors, right? He didn't earn that. That's just what he was born with. But then he says, like, you know, uh, I, I, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was a persecutor of the church, which for his community was a good thing. And uh, and that, you know, as, as he's with the law, like faultless. So he was going on to his achieve. That's how he gained his sense of status as a Jewish person in this context. And what did he say? Like, I let go of all of that. All of that is like garbage to what? To knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. In other words, I think he's saying like, I no longer get my sense of self and identity and status in that way. I only can get that through Christ. And so I, I do think like that we have to figure out what does it mean to refuse to exploit our status, whatever status we happen to have, to regularly empty ourselves. What does that mean? I go into those in quite uh, detail. And then what does revolutionary humble obedience mean? I, I take the last chapter to really look at maybe a more current example, uh, Oscar Romero in El Salvador. And uh, I, I think by looking at his journey, because we have a lot of his, like his, his own writings, a lot of you know very recent, we can see that he imitated Christ in an amazing way. And it ultimately cost him his life as it did Jesus. And that's why it's fairly scandalous. <laughs> no, it's so good. To, uh... Yeah, I want to, you know, it's it's interesting. Like, I think I'm going to change my whole theory about Philippians just from listening to you talk right there, because I just got an insight into my own uh, miss, because I've always, mm. I've, I've always hit the status stuff and like, and I don't think this is incorrect, but I think your work is going even deeper. I just want to name this and maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth either, but I've always said, because I play off the whole status thing, I always, it's, well, two things. It's also interesting that everybody says, just do what Jesus does, but then Paul actually has the guts to say, look at me, imitate me, right, in 317, and then look at the ways that other people that follow this. So he's talking yeah. about himself, Timothy and Epaphroditus. So these are people that legit the Philippians know, and Epaphroditus is probably a Philippian. So that's like, that's the ultimate scandal right there. Hey, you want to see what a Christian looks like? He's sitting across the room from you, right? So I want to name that. But then this, like I've always said, the status you embrace sets the limits on your capacity to reach others with the gospel. So I had a missional framing of it, trying to idea that if you're going to live first class life, you're going to have a hard time reaching everybody because Jesus, and you already hit it, he he's becomes a slave, which is the bottom. But I'm going to change that based on what you said. Just see how this lands. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, yeah. How about, some, how no, about something ahead. like this? The status you embrace sets the limits 
of, I don't, I don't know if I want to say God's or your capacity to grow deeply in Christ. I want to say your, it, it sets the limit. So if we want to yeah. embrace a certain status, maybe that's the, you can only, like, if you want to be the king, you want to be the emperor, you want to be <laughs> Roman citizen, that's the limit that's going to set a lid on or a floor on how far you can go into God's grace. But if you're willing to renounce status, which means I still could be a, in the eyes of the world, a high status person, but I refuse to exploit that. And I'm willing to just take the low status. I don't know. Am I hearing you right? Is that where you're trying to get at? I mean, it, yeah, I, yeah, I think it, it kind of is our, our construction of our identity. So yeah, I think yeah. you rightly say that, for example, this is kind of why I really tried to take someone like Oscar Romero, because he was made archbishop of all of El Salvador. This was like a super powerful position. It's the highest position that you could have in a Catholic country, right? Next to the president. And uh, I think by looking at his life, uh, I, I feel like it gives a thing. So is it wrong to uh, be the archbishop of El Salvador? I would say no, but like this was not where he found his sense of identity. Yes. What did he do? Like uh, he refused to use that status to his own advantage. Uh, he didn't even stay in the nice house that you're supposed to stay in. When people offered him houses and cars, he re refused it. He stayed in this very simple room attached to the hospital. He purposefully let go of certain things that that particular role held. He didn't hold that or use it to his advantage. He 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 kind of humbled himself and. And in, in some ways, like the, the powerful wanted to, you know, connect with him. He he had to distance himself a bit from the powerful because of how they were treating everybody else in the country. And until they he extended love to them, he didn't totally dismiss them or, you know, erase all connection. He was still doing that, but he safely distanced himself because he knew what he could probably become if he let that become his main space of community because i think we he probably understood that we become like those that we're closest to he knew he had to distance himself in his way of living even with this high position that he had so i i'm not you know like you said like it's not about like uh that we can't potentially rise to whatever type of role that god may have us do i think that that sense of uh you know like joseph was to a high place but he kind of kept his spirituality right we can't find our significance in that role. And the moment we do, the, the, yeah, I, and I think we, all we do is take some kind of reflection. Like a, I, I like to daily reflect on the Lord's Prayer. I kind of give that as an example. But like, yeah. you know, my, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Like, like ultimately, I, I first need to realize I'm just a child of God. And I may be in this position, but I, I hold it lightly. And I don't let this position mold me or mold my sense of self. My sense of self has to be based on a very different thing so that I can actually uh, overcome the powers because this position, in other words, like uh, will be tested according to the praise given us. Our praise, when it becomes higher, usually you know, makes our positions higher. That's where the test is. It's not the position itself. It's, the, it's, it's are we going to still find our significance ultimately in God and as a child of God? Uh, is our ultimate sense of significance. This is Jesus' battle, right? This is why he had to take time with the Father. Jesus was a human just like you and I, 
Uh, and so he had to overcome the powers through imitation. And that's why we see, I only do what the father do. I only say what the father said. Like, I think that kind of demonstrates that probably Jesus was also the only way he could overcome the powers in his humanness is to, is, is to imitate his father. And I think, uh, you know, in, in particular, I'm talking about desire, imitation of desire, because that's core to who we are. Um, you know, our beliefs are important. What we think is important, but maybe as uh, James K. Smith makes a good case for what we desire or what we love is most important and what we love ultimate is kind of is is what we worship and whether we worship an idol or god you know is kind of dependent on that uh, our desires no so good and uh, again you just listen listening to jr he weaves so many good influences into the this book the scandal of leadership and i do highly recommend it um again feel like we could go on for a long time but i do want to wrap up a little bit today tell um like before we jump off here, how, just these are kind of quick questions. Talk a little bit about like maybe what's next. Is I mean, this is a massive project that you've pulled together. Is there another like big project that God's put on your heart that maybe you're going to write about over the you know the next 15, 20 years? <laughs> uh, yeah. How big, are people oh, going to? Yeah, how people are, you know, and then and then let, let people know where they can find the book and how they can learn a little sure. bit more about you. But yeah, I'd love to know if there's oh, yeah, something yeah, yeah. You know, this other big idea. Like, is there a book you're afraid to write, maybe or something? I'm just curious uh, <laughs> what, what what might be next for you. Yeah, there there are a couple of book projects. I am going to focus on this, trying to kind of you know just kind of get the word out for a little bit of a season yeah, yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, but like, uh, yeah, I the, the probably the next book that I'm kind of due to write is with uh, my friend Un. She's a church planner in Hawaii, and we don't have a title, but it's kind of like uh, dealing with the structured for movement, and it's kind of dealing with the four spaces of belonging that sociologists discovered Joseph Myers kind of popularizes, and like, what does it mean to kind of restructure the church so that the we kind of give a little bit more honor to the priesthood of believers and a little bit more ministry and action. And so, uh, you know, it's kind of, uh, I, I would say, you know, that intimate space at three to four people is like moving from being uh, unknown to known, personal space moving from small group to uh, equipping disciples, uh, social space moving from communities to communities on mission, public space instead of idolizing like the mega church does or demonizing like the house church. I think it's trying to reimagine it. And so that would be some of the flow and getting real practical on that. That's probably a, a upcoming. I'd like to do some more pop level books based on the scandal of leadership book as well. Good. And there's probably others that, that those are on the radar. I, I, I feel like uh, I want to do much more kind of uh, short, accessible, 30, 40, 50,000 word uh, books that kind of hit a particular point. That's it, you know, if the Lord gives me opportunity, that's probably some of the writing. Um, you can buy my book anywhere you like to buy books. You know, it's uh, on Amazon, it's on Barnes and Noble, whatever. Um, it's available, you know, Kindle, other ebooks at different places. Uh, if you want to find more about me, you can just go to jrwoodward.com. And you, you'll also be able to kind of access the books through there as well. Uh, well they'll, they'll just kind of give you, point you to Amazon probably. And, uh, and and just learn more about me there you could sign up for like a you know a newsletter i i'm a pretty occasional writer not a regular writer as some are and i just kind of give updates on the you know, leadership uh, probably in a about a month or so i will have a a, a guidebook for doing a book club uh if you want to kind of study this book with others so there'll be a concrete free guidebook on how to set that up and some 
suggested questions and dialogue thing that you can use or not use, but it's just kind of there to, to help anybody. Because I do feel like that uh, this is a book that's helpful to read with others, kind of so you kind of keep a good pace, but you just have the opportunity to interact with others is a great way to learn. Not so good. Thank you uh, very much. Oh, I know one thing you cut off right when you were saying who your co-author is. And I think you said it was a church planner in Hawaii, but that oh, you're, Un, Un, Un Strausser uh, okay. is probably somebody I'll be writing with. Yeah. Okay, uh, cool. She, she leads a church plant in uh, Oahu. And I, I actually, when I, last time I met with you, I was in Hawaii I stayed at her house. So I kind of were, was a part of that plant for a, a good year. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. So, and she's living out quite well. And so we're, um, yeah, she has a new book out called Centering Discipleship that I wrote the forward to. Uh, but like we've kind of uh, felt like this is, this collaborative thing has been something we've wanted to do. Uh, we do like any, a six-week immersion on it, but it'll be a little bit more deeper than that immersion even. So um, I'm excited about that because I feel like uh, that uh, when it comes to, you know, your, your passions of spiritual formation, discipleship, mission, uh, I, 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 you know, I, I really think they happen in the other three spaces, uh, the best, not the public space. And, and I think we need to kind of today, I think the tails wagging the dog and we need to turn that around. Uh, I think all four spaces are important. I think they all need to be relooked at as well. Amen. So good. Well, uh, well, my friend, I've, again, I've known you for a long time and it's just really great to catch up here. So thanks for being my, uh, my guest today. And thank you for uh, being faithful disciple and just continue to grow and use your mind to really help the church in the 21st century to really art, embody Christ and share that good news with the world. Well, and, and thank you for the same, you know, I appreciate your new book out. Uh, I'm looking forward to kind of getting my hands on it this week and checking it out because as I said, like it's probably going to be a big help in the temptations that we all face. Uh, we need to have a good way to really connect deeply with God through his word and hear his word and let that draw us into uh, relationship. And so, uh, so that we have this rooted sense of identity. So I, I, I wanted to say I, I've enjoyed our kind of relationships, the times that we occasionally have got to meet in person and the work that you're doing. Thanks for all of that as well. Well, thank you, brother. And thanks to everybody for listening all the way to the end of this week's episode. And until next time, live by faith, be known by love and be a voice of hope to others.